The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. Let's take our Bibles again today and turn to the first chapter of Genesis, as we have been now for a few weeks, uh, turning to uh, chapter 1. Uh, I'll be reading again to us verses 26 to 27 of Genesis chapter 1. <coughs> So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we come before you this morning and we consider your holy word, we thank you that you have not left us in the dark, but that you have revealed yourself to us in the world that you have made and also in your holy word. And we thank you that we can come to you today and to your word, knowing you as our loving Heavenly Father who loved us and gave your Son for us, and that we can therefore trust your word. Lord, that uh, we can trust that your word is right and it's true and it's what is best for us. Lord, we would not be rebellious in our hearts and we would not be stiff-necked before your word, but we would come before your word today humbly, recognizing that you are the one who has made us, not we ourselves, that we belong to you, that you are a God who is good and gracious and kind and loving even giving your son to die for us. And therefore, we can trust your word and that what you tell us is what is right. So help us to approach your word in that way today, that we might not cause your word or make your word to say what we wanted to say, but that we would hear what you say to us and that you would give us understanding. Help me, Lord, to be faithful to your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> As we all know, uh, and often we, we say and talk about that our country is in a time of great moral crisis. In fact, having forsaken a Christian worldview, uh, we have fallen to such depths of moral confusion that women have almost all but disappeared uh, from our society. You say, what do you mean uh, women have disappeared? Oh yes, not, not too long ago. Hardly even two years ago, there were plenty of women around. But now, uh, with the ascendancy of politically correct, gender-fluid, transgender madness, women have almost disappeared. For example, <clears throat> as Albert Moeller in a recent article points out, back in the olden days of 2020... Uh, the pro-abortion group National Abortion Rights Action League, Pro-Choice America, instructed abortion activists to use the language of, quote, a woman's choice. Other pro-abortion groups advocated using the language of a woman's reproductive health uh, when talking about abortion. But 2020, that was ancient history when women still existed. Now such groups insist on the use of 
quote, gender-neutral language. There are no longer women. Instead, there are what are called pregnant people or chest feeders. But not only have women disappeared, men are quickly disappearing too. The medical community is being told now to refer to us as persons with a prostate. So both men and women are disappearing from American society all in the interest of deadly, God-defying nonsense. And this is just one of the ways that we see the moral fabric of Western society unraveling all around us. Well, this morning we return to a series of messages we've been in now for several weeks entitled, Recovering God's Design for Humanity in a World that Has Gone Mad. And there are a number of biblical topics related to this that I've seeking to address, all of which are very relevant to the many issues that we and our children face and are facing and will be facing in our culture today. And so far, we've been looking at the account God's Word gives us of the creation of man. For here in these early chapters of Genesis, there's a lot for us to learn about mankind and why we are here and uh, uh, who we are. And most recently, as we've opened, been opening this up, we have been considering what we see here and in the rest of Scripture concerning the sexual distinction of mankind, which, again, is a, a supreme, uh, 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 extremely relevant to what we see happening in our society today. We've seen that God, from the beginning, when He created man, created mankind is consisting of two distinct sexes, male and female, and I took the occasion two Sundays ago to address the transgender movement or transgenderism in our country today. And uh, we consider the main idea behind it, where the, what are the streams of thought that have led us to this point that, we, uh, that someone can say, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, and that's actually considered as rational and meaningful. And then we considered contra the transgender movement, what the scriptures teach us, beginning here in Genesis about the sexual distinction of mankind as God created us and intended us to be. And then last week, we continue with this subject of the sexual distinction of mankind, and and we'll also be doing so today. And here in these early chapters of Genesis, we find the, the building blocks of a biblical understanding of masculinity and femininity, which are then traced out in more detail for us throughout the rest of Scripture. And as we look at these first two chapters, what we find, I believe, uh, can be summarized very simply in this way, that between the man and the woman, there is equality of dignity, value, and importance, while at the same time, there are distinctions of biology, role, and function. Equality of dignity, value, and importance, and distinctions of biology, role, and function. Well, last week, our focus was on the first of these two foundational uh, truths or principles, namely uh, that between the man and the woman there is equality of dignity, value, and importance. That's where we, we began. We have to be clear on that. We have to understand that in the ways that that is true before we can rightly understand where the proper distinctions truly are between male and female according to the Bible. So what are some of the ways in which men and women are equal in dignity, value, and importance. Well, we saw last week that both men and women are created in the image of God. 
We saw that both men and women share together in the creation mandate to subdue the earth and to have dominion over the creation. We saw also that both men and women are equal recipients of the blessings of salvation and redemption in Jesus Christ. And then we also saw how in the Bible, women are highly valued and praised and were actively involved in important Christian service and ministry in the church. And again, in all these ways, which I opened up in some detail last week, the Bible emphasizes the absolute equality of dignity, value, and importance between men and women. But does that mean that men and women are the same in every way? That there is no real distinction between male and female? No, and this leads us today to the other side of the equation. There is equality of worth and importance, but at the same time, there are important distinctions. And again, these are first pointed to here in these opening chapters of Genesis. So let's consider now in the time remaining today, these God-ordained differences. Okay, first of all, there is a physical or biological distinction, a physical or biological distinction. Now, I don't think I have to prove that to anybody. Men and women are different physically. We all know that. When God created the world, he did not create some kind of androgynous, sexless being. In other words, the original humans were not neuter, neither male nor female, as some would actually have us to believe. No, male and female, he created them. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female He created them. So God created two humans of equal dignity, value, and importance, both in the image of God, but they were different physically and biologically. Their uh, their sexual organs are different. Normally, as we all know, men, at least in general, are physically stronger. Relatively speaking, the female body is softer than the man's body. Men and women are built differently, and so on. The Bible often speaks of the strength of a man, while it often speaks about the beauty of a woman. Just look those terms up, and you'll see that. Of course, these realities are relative, not absolute. Women have a measure of strength, and some more than others, and some men have a measure of beauty. Yet, as another has pointed out, ordinarily, we have a world's strongest man contest and a Miss America pageant and not vice versa. Of course, things have become so confused now that maybe we do have a Mr. America pageant and a world's strongest, well, I don't know. But, uh, but, and so, but my point is there are these physical differences, there are, and there are other physiological and hormonal differences between men and women. That's just a fact of creation. And let me just point out that these biological differences are not merely or only a difference in anatomy. You see, part of the current dogma today is that gender differences are all culturally created. They're merely humanly devised, socially constructed ideas, and that apart from obvious differences in anatomy, men and women are exactly the same. But quite apart from the Bible, even medical research completely dismantles that idea, especially in the area of brain structure and activity. And it's not that men are smarter or have higher IQs than women. There's no real difference there. And it's not that men are better than women or vice versa. No, but they're just different in the way God created them 
and in the way their brains work. You don't have to be married too long to figure that out, right? And let me quote to you from an article that was published in the LA Times a few years ago entitled, Deep Dark Secrets of His or Her Brains. The article comments on studies which show that the biological differences between men and women are much more complex than some have thought. Quoting, in the last decade, studies of perception, cognition, memory, and neural function have found apparent gender differences that often buck conventional prejudices. Women's brains, for instance, seem to be faster and more efficient than men's. All in, I can say amen to that with my wife's brain for sure. It makes me think about how women are able to multitask often in ways that men, you know, men tend to be zeroed in on one thing. It's not, these are generalizations, obviously. But someone, someone put something up on Facebook. One of our members recently was a, of a train track, and it showed a train track straightly going down the road. And he said, that's, that's men having a discussion. Then it showed another, like it was a conjunction of train tracks all coming together. And, and women have this ability to to hold several things in their mind at the same time and to discuss them and to multitask. And God's made them that way. He's made men in the way he's made them. And anyway, these, these studies are confirming these things. All in all, it goes on to say, men appear to have more gray matter made up of active neurons and women more of the white matter responsible for communication between different areas of the brain. Men and women appear to use different parts of the brain to encode memories, sense emotions, recognize faces, solve certain problems and make decisions. Indeed, when men and women of similar intelligence and aptitude perform equally well, their brains appear to go about it differently. Now listen, as if nature had separate blueprints, researchers at UC Irvine reported, as if nature had separate blueprints. No, my friend, it's not some impersonal, undefinable thing called nature. It's God who had separate blueprints, as it were, when he created male and female. There's no difference in IQ or intelligence, but what these studies confirm is what the Bible has been telling us all along. Men and women are designed to function differently, and that's a wonderful thing. That's a beautiful thing. And this is not by accident or evolution. God created us this way and intended it to be this way. And God has fitted each sex by creation for the particular roles and functions each is to fill in his perfect plan. So we've seen, first of all, that there is a physical or biological distinction. And then we see here in Genesis, there's also, secondly, a vocational distinction, a vocational distinction. Now, we saw last week that both share in the creation mandate to be fruitful, to subdue the earth, to exercise dominion over God's creation. They share together in that calling, but the way they both contribute to that is not exactly the same. There's a vocational difference. Now, notice with me several things in the Genesis narrative that, that point to this. It's something that's traced out further in the Bible. Consider, first of all, Adam's calling or vocation in the original creation, or the work that Adam was given to do. In chapter 2, we're given more detail about the creation of the man and the woman, and we read in verse 8 that before the woman was ever made, verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. 
We then have a description of the garden itself. And then we read in verse 15, Then the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend it and to keep it. Now, this was before Eve was made. The garden was that special place on earth where God would meet with Adam and Eve. Now, I don't have time to get into all the significance of the Garden of Eden in Scripture, but it was Adam's job to cultivate and to extend that garden temple over the whole earth. And it was his job to keep it, or the word means to guard it and protect it. He was to maintain its upkeep, cultivate and extend it, and he was to guard it and protect it by keeping out anything evil or unclean. So Adam's calling involved these two tasks— cultivating the garden and protecting it. Or we could put it this way, his job was first to work. The Hebrew word translated tend is the word abad, which literally means work. He was to work it. It's a very common word in the Old Testament. As a verb, it most often means work, serve, labor, cultivate. First Adam was to work. He was given this worthy task of making the garden fruitful and extending the garden temple over the whole earth. And he was to devote himself to this task, to this work. And second, Adam was to protect. The Hebrew word is shamar, which can be translated by uh, uh, such English words as watch, guard, protect, take under custody, or exercise care. It's used of soldiers, shepherds, priests, custodians, government officials. Guarding and protecting and defending. So here is Adam's specific calling. He is to work and he is to protect. He is to cause good things to grow, as it were, and he is to keep precious things safe. He is to wield the plow and he is to bear the sword. He is to make the garden fruitful and he is to guard it. He is to labor and provide and he is also to stand up and be counted whenever there's danger or when evil threatens. Richard Phillips in his book on biblical masculinity calls this the the masculine mandate. And now notice, secondly, we have the creation of the woman and her vocation. And the vocational difference between the two involves two realities established here in Genesis 2. One is the fact that Eve is created after Adam to be his companion helper. And the other is Eve's special function as the mother of all living. Her role as helper to the man and as the mother of children. Consider first her role as Adam's intimate companion helper. Picking up at verse 18. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Verse 21. After Adam names the animals, it says, verse 21, And the Lord God caused the deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. And then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. So though both sexes here are mutually dependent upon each other, the man is created first, and the woman is created to help the man. Now, this word helper is not in any way a demeaning term. It's not saying she's inferior to the man, that she's his slave. No, God sometimes describes himself in the Bible with this exact same word in the Old Testament in his dealings with his people. However, it does speak to the orientation of the woman and the function of the woman, particularly in the context of marriage and also in the church, as we'll see. In fact, the New Testament draws attention to this very fact 
that that's what this is pointing to. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 11, when he's setting forth the role relationships between men and women in the church, he roots his teaching in this creation account, in the creation order. <clears throat> he says in 1 Corinthians 11, 7 and following, For the woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. In other words, man was created first, and the woman was taken out of the man, not vice versa. God took from the man one of his ribs, and from his side he made the woman. Again, Paul says, for man is not from woman, but woman from man. And then he says, nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. The woman was created for the man. Now, Paul is pointing out there that when God did it that way, he did it that way on purpose. The creation order is intended to communicate something, to teach us, to confirm to us certain realities concerning the role relationships of men and women. There is a difference in the orientation of the man and the orientation of the woman in the fulfillment of the creation mandate. She was made to be a helper to the man in the fulfilling of his task. Adam, in a sense, we could even say is first and foremost task-oriented. Eve is first and foremost Adam-oriented. Eve finds her focus in God-given function in, in the helping, supportive role in the marriage relationship. So vocationally, in the context of the marriage relationship and also in the church, as we'll see later, the woman has been assigned the helping, supporting role. And then connected to this, secondly, there's the unique function of the woman in giving birth to children. Later in chapter 3, verse 20 of Genesis, we're told that Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. The Hebrew word is chava, which means living or life giver, we could say. She is the mother of all living. Now think about that. All human life is implanted and nourished in her body and comes forth from a woman's body. All human life. Men don't have babies. Only women can do that. And God made it that way from the beginning. The woman has been given this unique blessing, this wonderful privilege of bringing new life into the world, carrying that little one in her womb. It's very life sustained by her umbilical, umbilical, umbilical cord. Excuse me. And so you see here in Genesis, that's where the emphasis lies. She carries that child. She nurtures that child in ways that only a woman can do. And here in Genesis, the emphasis falls then upon the helping, supporting role of the woman in her relationship to her husband and upon her nurturing role as the mother of children, while the emphasis with respect to the man falls upon his role as leader, provider, and protector. Now, this is borne out in the rest of Scripture. There is this general division of labor that you'll find throughout the Bible between the man and the woman. Now, we need to be careful here. That division is not rigid or absolute. There's a lot of overlap. But there's still this general vocational distinction and difference in emphasis. That, that well-known passage, uh, Proverbs 31, I think is helpful here. Let's turn over there. Proverbs 31. <clears throat> we have that description of the virtuous woman. And 
let's look at that description. Let me just read it to us, and I'll make a comment or two. Most of us know it, but I want you to pay attention to what it says in light of this, this issue of the vocational distinction between the man and the woman. Who can find a virtuous wife? For her worth is far above rubies. The heart of her husband safely trusts her, so he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and willingly works with her hands. She is like the merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She also rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and a portion for her maidservants. And let me just say, you've got to remember, too, when you're reading this, this description is given in the light of the economies of the world at that time in history, okay? It does not necessarily mean that every, you're saying every wife needs to seek wool and flax and make their own clothes and their own soap and all that kind of stuff. No, but, but, but we've got to get the principles, the, the general thrust that's here, okay? She also rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and a portion for her maidservants. She considers a field and buys it from her profits. She plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and strengthens her arms. She perceives that her merchandise is good, and her lamp does not go out by night. She stretches out her hands to the distaff, and her hand holds the spindle. She extends her hand to the poor. Yes, she reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household is clothed with scarlet. She makes tapestry for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies sashes for the merchants. Strength and honor are her clothing. She shall rejoice in time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and on her tongue is the law of kindness. She watches over the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many daughters have done well, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is passing. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands, and let her own works praise her in the gates. Now, I don't have time to open all this up, but just listen as I quote from John Frame here, commenting on this picture that we're given in this passage, because he really makes the points that I I want us to see. (coughs) He says, quoting him, The husband works in the fields and serves as an elder in the gates. In other words, uh, he was like a, in the town council, you might say. Verse 23, the wife works primarily at home, bearing and nurturing the children, teaching them and providing a good environment for their early years. However, it is also true that the woman cannot have children without male help, nor raise them properly without male fathering. And the man cannot accomplish his cultural tasks without the help of the woman. Proverbs 31 presents a kind of balance. The woman focuses on the home as the major sphere of her activity. She does not sit in the gates as a ruler of the people, as does her husband. Rather, she focuses on household tasks and the needs of her children. But she does does also help her husband, not only by what we might call a typical homemaker work, but also by contributing to the family's economic well-being. She earns money and purchases property. Verse 16 and 18, she works hard so that all her household will have their needs met. So there's a lot of overlap here. The division of labor is not rigid, but there is a clear distinction in terms of emphasis. Over and over in Scripture, we see this. 
that the primary sphere of attention for the wife and mother is the home and the children. 1 Timothy 5.14, Therefore I desire that the younger women marry, bear children, manage the house. And what are the older women in the church to teach the younger women, according to Titus 2.4? Let the older women admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste homemakers or makers of the home, okay? Now, again, we have to be careful here not to say more than the Scriptures are saying. This doesn't mean that men have no work to do at home or no responsibility in the care of the children, nor does it mean that it's never right for a woman to work outside the home. It doesn't teach that. The woman in Proverbs 31 also engaged in various business endeavors. And and we also have to remember that modern economies today are often much different than the agricultural economies that were common in Bible times. Most of us men aren't farmers, for example. In cottage industries, are rarely feasible or profitable in our day of modern manufacturing. So these general distinctions have to be worked out in different ways, in different settings, and in different economies. It's not a rigid division, but it's a matter of primary sphere of responsibility. And this is something every couple has to consider and to prayerfully work out. There are no rigid rules here, but there is this general principle that establishing and caring for the life of the home, especially when there are children in the home, is the primary sphere of responsibility assigned to the wife and the mother. Though the husband, of course, has responsibility as well, and in one sense over everything that happens in the home, that's her sphere of of, uh, domain and work, especially in terms of the home. So there's a physical distinction between the man and the woman. There's a vocational distinction. And then thirdly, there's a positional distinction. God has ordained an authority structure in society and in the home, and the same is true in the church. And this too is pointed to here in these early chapters of Genesis, but turn with me to 1 Corinthians 11 a moment. And we see this principle stated there, and Paul actually supports it from the Genesis account. 1 Corinthians 11. Excuse me. Verse 3. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So here Paul speaks in general terms, the head of woman is man. Later he applies this more specifically to the authority structure in the church, later in 1 Corinthians 14. And also in 1 Timothy 2.11 and following, where Paul writes that a woman is not to teach or have authority over a man in the church. In other words, elders and pastors in the church are to be men. And this principle is also applied in the home in the New Testament. In Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, 1 Peter 3, where we're told that the husband is the head of the wife. Ephesians 5.22, following, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Now, the word head simply means authority over. He has given authority over the wife, and he has provided his wife with Christ-like, sacrificial, loving protection, and leadership. He is to lead her. 
in the family in a climate of love in which he is, exhort, he is taught in Scripture and commanded by the Lord to love his wife as Christ loved the church sacrificially and gave himself for her. And then the word submit or submission simply means to line up under someone's leadership. A wife is to line herself under the leadership of her husband as to the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that she's to follow her husband over a cliff uh, or that she must follow him in sin. No, she follows her husband's leadership as an act of devotion to the Lord, as to the Lord. If her husband ever pressures, pressures her to disobey the Lord, then she must obey God rather than men. But in all other matters in the family, after all discussion is done, prayer, decision has to be made about something, the wife is to follow her husband's leadership. That doesn't mean she's never to voice her opinion or to give her input and counsel. No, a man who refuses to seek out and to listen to and to take seriously and highly value his wife's input and counsel in the major decisions of of the family, he's sinning. And he's also a fool. Remember, as I said last week, God, and as we saw earlier, God gave man his wife because he needs help, right, to be his helper. We need lots of help. And a woman has been given a kind of feminine wisdom. She's been given feminine intuition and sensitivities that we kind of blockheaded men sometimes greatly need to draw on in the leadership of our families and also in the church. So we need the input of our wives. But ultimately, when all is said and done, God says the buck stops with the husband. He has been assigned by God the solemn responsibility and position of leadership. Indeed, really, the only time, you know, someone said, I'm really submissive to my husband as long as he always does what I want him to do, right? The only time, really, this matter of submission really comes into play is when after every effort has been made between a husband and wife to arrive at an agreement about some decision that needs to be made, and the two don't agree, and yet the decision has to be made, when that happens, you can't have two chiefs. Families don't work when you have two chiefs. Eventually, a decision has to be made. And this is where the wife is required to acquiesce in her husband's leadership. And she can do that with the joy of knowing that she doesn't need to fret about it. Because ultimately, she's doing it unto who? She's doing it unto the Lord. She's doing it for the Lord's sake. And she can trust in the Lord. But now I want you to notice how Paul grounds this principle here in the account of creation. He also grounds it in redemption, as we'll see in a moment. Well, notice, first of all, he roots it in creation. Now, let me just mention to get out of the way here that the practical question that Paul is addressing in this chapter, first part of the chapter, is women's head coverings. And I'm not going to get into that today, what was meant by that at that time, but I'll just say this, I don't believe it was, you know, wearing a little patch of hat on your head. I don't think it has anything to do at all with what Paul's talking about here. But but that's the practical issue. But the underlying concern in this matter is this matter of a proper recognition expression of male leadership the fact verse 3 that the head of woman is man and notice in verses 8 and 9 how he roots this principle not in cultural attitudes of the time as some want to argue but in the creation order look at verses 8 and 9 for man is not from woman but woman from man 
nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. He's referring to the fact that in the beginning, at the creation, the woman was taken out of the man, not vice versa. And the woman was created for the man to be his helper, not, vi- not vice versa. And Paul is arguing that this order of creation is intended by God to point to this order of authority. So the woman was made from the man and for the man. Therefore, she was also made after the man. And this is something else pointing to male leadership according to Scripture. And Paul speaks to this in 1 Timothy 2, 12 to 13. And there he's talking about male leadership in the church, that only men are to serve as pastors in the church. And he says, but I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. He's talking about in the context of the church. For Adam, what's his reason that he gives? For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Notice he doesn't base that teaching in the cultural context of the times. He roots it in the creation order. This is the way God has determined and created from the very beginning that it is to be. Adam was formed first and Eve. So all of this points to what is later explicitly declared in Scripture, that the head of woman is man. When it comes to the decision-making authority structure, though the man and the woman are partners as image bearers of God, though they need each other's help and input, though sometimes the wife may even be smarter and the more gifted of the two, though all of that is true, ultimately the final decision rests with the man. The buck stops with the man. He's given by God this tremendous, weighty responsibility of being the spiritual leader of the home. And the same is true in the church. But now I want you to notice that Paul not only roots this in the order of creation, secondly, he also roots it in the order of redemption. Look again at verse 3. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, Paul sets male leadership within this framework of a divine order of authority that pervades the entire universe. It's sandwiched between two corresponding headships that God has ordained in the world. The first, Paul says, I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. And then after his statement of of the man's headship over the woman, he says, and the head of Christ is God. Now, that's a statement that tends to give people trouble. And it's it's sometimes been misinterpreted. You say, I thought Christ and God are equal. Well, you're right about that. They are equal when it comes to their eternal and divine essence and nature. And Paul is not denying the doctrine of the Trinity. In the mystery of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are co-equal. There is but one living and true God. And that one God exists in three persons. Furthermore, the Apostle Paul is not speaking here of God the Son you got to follow me here. He's not speaking of him merely as he stands related to the Father and his eternal divine essence and nature. In other words, he's not speaking of some kind of eternal functional subordination in the Godhead, okay? He's speaking of God the Son in his divine nature joined to his human nature having become a man. In other words, he's speaking of him as the God-man, what he became when his divine nature was joined to his human nature, and he willingly submitted himself to the Father 
in the accomplishment of our redemption. You'll notice that Paul uses the title Christ, which is our Lord's title as mediator between God and man, as the God-man. You see, though our Lord never has been before, during, or after his incarnation in any way inferior to the Father in his divine essence and nature, Yet when he became man, he willingly submitted himself to the Father in his role as Savior and Redeemer of his people. And therefore, you'll read in the New Testament the Father being described as sending the Son. And the Son is described as coming into this world and taking upon himself human nature in obedience to the Father. And in loving subjection to the Father, he accomplishes the work of our redemption. You see, though... The Father and the Son are equal in dignity and worth and are equally God. There is, in time and space, what has been called an economic subordination of Christ, the God-man, to the Father in the work of our salvation. And in that sense, God the Father is the head of Christ. And the same is true of the man and the woman. There's no thought of inferiority here, but there is distinction of role and function. The Son, in His work as mediator, willingly submits Himself to the Father. And we can say more about this, but this is the framework, you see, within which Paul places the doctrine of male leadership. You follow all that? Mm. Okay, well, think about it. But you see what he's doing here. There's this structure, there's this framework of of authority that even relates to the relationship of God the Father to the God-man, Christ. And it's a pattern of the relationship of the man and the woman. Now, what are some of the practical implications of this teaching? We're going to have to, I'm going to mention three and then we're going to have to be done for today, all right? First of all, we see here that authority structures are an inevitable, inescapable law of the universe. God has established a structure of authority by which he carries out his redeeming purposes in the world. A structure within which not only the relationship of the man and the woman is regulated, but that even applies in certain ways to the relationship of Christ incarnate and God the Father. Think of what a skeleton is to a body. If you remove a man's skeleton, what happens to his body? What would a man look like without a skeleton? No skull, no jaw, no leg bone, no thigh bone, no arms, no knee bone connected to the shin bone. What's the song? Shin bone connected to the ankle bone. Just a pile of matter, a big glob of matter and muscle and tissue. We can't function without bones. They provide the structure that's necessary to allow the human body to operate smoothly and act as it's intended to do. Well, the order established by God is to the universe what the skeleton is to the body. It provides the structure which enables the orderly function of God's universe in the way he has intended. We could compare it to what are sometimes called the laws of nature, like gravity and inertia without which the, uh, the very existence of the universe would be impossible. Those laws of nature are expressions of God's authority and power sustaining and governing the physical world that he has made. 
It's in this way that he holds the material universe together. But my dear friends, this universe is not only material. It has spiritual and personal dimensions as well. And these dimensions also have laws God has established for their proper and orderly operation. And one of these is this principle of the authority structure in the home and in the church. The difference is that because these are spiritual and moral principles, man in his sin may reject them and refuse to obey them, and the end is misery and confusion and chaos like we see in our world today. Secondly, secondly, the fact male leadership is rooted in the order of redemption as well as creation reminds us that this did not end with the fall. Okay? Some have tried to argue that. Yeah, there were these distinctions before the fall. But the creation order is not permanent because the fall has happened. This is one of the arguments. Creation didn't remain in its original state. It fell under Adam and was redeemed in Christ. Therefore, that means the original order no longer applies. Well, what do we say to that? Well, first of all, the very fact that Paul in the New Testament here and elsewhere actually appeals to the original order of creation shows us that it still applies. It hasn't changed. It hasn't changed. Secondly, you have to remember that redemption is redemption. It doesn't nullify the original creation. It redeems it, and it restores it, and it perfects it, and it glorifies it. And then thirdly, here we see in 1 Corinthians eleven three that male leadership is not only rooted in the order of creation. It's also rooted in the order of redemption. In this present age, in connection with the work of redemption through Christ, there is this divine order of headship. God the Father is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of every man. And man is the head of woman in those male-female relationships and structures that God has established in the world. And then thirdly, this text shows us again that the woman being under the leadership of the man does not mean or imply inferiority. And it does not mean that the woman is of less dignity and value than the man. It doesn't mean that with reference to Christ and his relationship to the Father, does it? And in the same way, it doesn't mean that with reference to the woman and her relationship to the man. There is a oneness. There is an equality of worth and dignity, while at the same time, there is difference. There is distinction of role and function. The wife is to be submissive to her husband, but she needs to understand And the husband needs to understand that that doesn't mean she's inferior. God is not saying that men are the special objects of his love and concern in some way that women are not. He's not saying that men are more valuable than women or more important than women. Male leadership is not a matter of superior worth and dignity. The issue is one of God-appointed role and function. The issue is one of the leadership role. It's about responsibility. God has assigned that weighty responsibility to the man. And dear men, we need to understand that it is indeed a weighty responsibility. It's not something to puff out our chests about and to bark out orders and to act like, you know, some arrogant idiot. No. It's a, it should humble us. It's a weighty, weighty responsibility. And dear men, we need to understand that. It's a responsibility for which we will have to give an account. It means that I am the captain of the ship. I'm responsible for whatever happens on that ship. 
If the first mate or one of the sailors sinks the ship at night while I'm sleeping in my bunk, who's held responsible? Who loses their command? It's the captain. The first mate may be guilty of some wrong, but the captain is held responsible for the proper operation of the ship. He's responsible to make sure that everyone else knows what they're supposed to be doing, that everyone is well-trained, that he has the right people at the right place doing the right things on the ship. He's the one who's held responsible for this. Well, to be the head of the family is to be the captain. So we can't make excuses, men, for the problems that we see in our homes or in our families or in our children. We have to step up and we have to take responsibility and we have to act and we have to take action. Your wife needs you to do that. You know, a good test is to ask the question, you take the words let's, let's just take the word let's, L-E-T apostrophe S, let us, all right? If you find that in your family, it's your wife who's always saying let's and you're never saying it, there's a problem there. Let's have family worship. Let's start reading through this book in family worship. Uh, let's, uh, Let's establish a budget with regard to this particular area where we're kind of struggling, and we'll set aside this much money for that and this much for that. Let's, let's, if it's the wife who's always having to say let's all the time because you don't take responsibility for the family, that's wrong. And you need to step up and you need to be the leader in your home that God's called you to be. I mean, sometimes, dear women, they have to step up and do things because their husband's so passive, he just sits in front of the television watching TV all the time and expects, is just oblivious to everything that's going on in the home. But men, we are responsible. We're the captain of the ship. So again, this is not something that we should be going around, I'm the head of the family and you do it. No, we should, be, we should be humbled by it, and we should, be, we, should, we should embrace that role with fear and trembling and with a sense of our great need of the grace and the help of the Lord Jesus to be good leaders of our wives and of our children. But before we go this morning, let's praise God that the Lord Jesus was willing to become man, to embrace his role as the God-man his role of submission to the Father in the work of our salvation. Thank God for that. For without that, we would all be lost. We would all be damned forever. God the Son became man. He humbled himself. He became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And there on that cross, he paid the awful debt that we owe to the justice of God for our sins. And therefore, God has highly exalted him. And has given him a name which is above every name. You see, in God's world, humility is the pathway, the true honor and exaltation. And that's equally true for both men and women. And because of what Christ has done in humbling himself for us, there is a gospel to preach. I have good news for every sinner in this building this morning. Your sins can be forgiven. All of them can be put away once and for all, and you can be reconciled to God now and forever, and it's all because of what Christ has done. And all that you must do is receive this gift of Jesus Christ with the open arms of faith as he is freely offered to you 
in the gospel. Praise God for Jesus Christ who humbled himself in obedience to the Father and accomplished the redemption of sinners. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever, 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 that means you, whoever you are, whoever believes on him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Praise his holy name. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you today for your word. Lord, we know that some of the things that I've said this morning really are countercultural today and sometimes are misunderstood and are caricatured in ways that are wrong and unbiblical. But Lord, we believe you. We trust in your word. We know that you love us. You gave your son for us. You know what is best for us and you know how to guide us and to teach us in these matters as to how we are to relate to one another as men and women. So help us as we continue to study your word about these things. Please guide us in the right path, teach and instruct us. We pray that our marriages would be models to the world of the love that Christ has for the church and also of that respect that we show to Christ. Lord, we pray that people would see that reflected in our marriage relationships. And we pray that you would help us men, that we would step up and take seriously the responsibility that we have to give loving, sacrificial leadership to our wives and to our children in those ways that are honoring and pleasing to you. Please forgive us where we fail. Forgive us where we've been passive and careless and selfish. Please help us, Lord, by your grace to be the men that you've called us to be. And we pray you'd help our dear wives, Lord, as they fulfill the many responsibilities that they have. Some of them here are 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 contributing to the family income and their work and also caring for the children and the home. And they have many, many responsibilities. We pray, Lord, that you'd give them strength and grace. We pray that our wives and mothers would feel loved and respected and honored in our church and in our families. Help us, Lord, to, to communicate that to them in the way we speak to them and the way we treat them. And now, Father, we commend all these things to you in the name of our blessed Savior who has come and has redeemed us from our iniquities and has made us your own special people that we might show forth the glory of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's in his name we pray. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.